I, uh, I listened to my very first TED Talk this week. I don't know if you are a TED Talker, but um, say, what took you so long? They've been around for a while. I, I, don't, know what, I don't know why that was the case, but I, I listened to a TED Talk delivered by Harvard psychologist Dan Gilbert entitled, Why We Make Bad Decisions. Why do we as humans struggle to make rational, and he's focusing primarily on economic decisions, he gives a couple of examples. Okay, it's, it's Friday night, and you are headed out to the Tom Petty concert. In your pocket, you have a $50 concert ticket, and you have a $50 bill. Well, somehow, between getting out of your car and walking up to the concert gate, you lose the concert ticket. And the question is, do you, do you spend the other 50 to replace it? And when he asks that question to most people, most people say, uh, no, I'm not going to. Why would I pay twice for the same item? Well, you change the scenario then, and he, he says, he asks, okay, in this scenario, imagine that instead of carrying a concert ticket, you're carrying two $50 bills, and you plan to buy the concert ticket up at the gate, but on your way from the car to the gate, you lose one of your $50 bills. Will you spend the other $50 bill on a ticket? And the answer almost inevitably is yes, of course I will. I mean, what? I came to see Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. (laughs) Uh, Why does losing $50, what is that? Why would that have anything anything, uh, to do with it? So you buy, and behavioral economists call this the problem of shifting comparisons. So if you're in the market for a car stereo, and the dealer that's right down the street here has that stereo for $200, but if you drive over to Ontario, Oregon, there's a special sale going on, and you can have the very same car stereo for $100. Would you make the drive? Well, of course I would make the drive to save $100. That's half off. But if you change the scenario, and this time you want to buy a car with the car stereo, the same car stereo in it, and the local dealership dealership has it for $31,000, But if you drive to Ontario, Oregon, you may be able to get it for $30,900. Would you make the drive? I I would waste that much in gas, right? Because it's only one-third of 1% savings. And most people say that I'm not willing to drive that distance for .003 discount. It's still $50, or it's still $100, but one is half off. And one is paying twice for the same item. And one is just a measly one-third of one percent. And so the, the, what he says is that we have a very difficult time uh, estimating the expected value of something when the, the comparisons change. That's why he says, I, I bet you don't even know if your mutual fund manager takes 0.1% or 0.15% off the top of your investments, but that you will assiduously uh, clip coupons to save a dollar on toothpaste. Ah. Well, how can I tie that into Genesis chapter 13, which is our passage this morning? We have started up a new series going through the lives of Abraham, uh, Jacob, and Joseph. I've entitled it, this part, The Gospel According to Abraham. We're looking at Abraham because... This is God's reclamation or redemption project to put the world back together. 
as strange as it turns out to be that God would use a perfectly flawed human being as he does in Abraham, that is the way he decides through Abraham and Abraham's family to put the world back together. And we come to this story here, chapter 13, verse 2, Abraham and Lot. And we read now, Abraham, or Abram, his name hasn't changed yet. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on up from Egypt, where he became very wealthy, up up from the south in Negev, as far as Bethel, to the place where his tents had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar when he first entered the land, or at the first. And there again, Abraham called upon the name of, of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And that seems rather strange, doesn't it? I mean, you have the entirety of the land of Canaan, and two nomadic herdsmen, you know, they can't find enough space to fit. Well, the answer to that conundrum is in, um, was later here in, in verse 7. There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of livestock, uh, of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the, in the land. There was, so they were basically trying to live on the margins or the edges. The, the land was mostly inhabited by, by not-so-friendly neighbors, Canaanites and Perizzites. And Abraham and Lot's households, we estimate, had grown rather large by this time. As many as several thousand, I've even heard the number 10,000 people attributed to Abraham's extended family at this time. Verse 8, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. If you're standing on the top of a mountain in the, the middle spine there in Israel, on the left, you'd have the land of Canaan, which is bordered to the west by the Mediterranean Sea. On the right, you have the Jordan River Valley, and further out to the east, uh, the, uh, the, what would be the modern nation of Jordan. So, in uh, Lot, verse 10 and Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before, parenthetically, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while... Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. A 
arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. You're reading this story. What, what jumps out off the page to you? What's surprising about the narrative? And it's how unconventional the decision was. Abraham, the, the patriarch of the family. If there was ever a culture in the world where the patriarch called the shots and ruled the roost and was, was basically a king, it was, it was this culture, an extremely ancient and patriarchal, a patriarchal culture uh, where Abraham is the alpha male. I mean, he, he is the, the superior, and nephew Lot is a thousand percent his, his subordinate. But Abraham places this critical decision into the hands of the junior member of the family. Why would he, why would you do something this, give such a a decision of this importance into the hands of somebody lower than you? And it says, the reason he did so was to maintain peace. The only way, as far as Abraham could reckon it, The only way for him to preserve family peace was to put himself at disadvantage and to give Lot the first choice of the best of the land. Now, I think any ancient person reading this would have immediately been struck by the fact that this is not how Lot should have responded. Like, a noble way for him to respond would would be to say, no, 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 Uncle Abraham, no. I could not do that. You, you, are, you are in char- charge. I, uh, I, um, the, no, the, if it means selling some of my flocks so that there's less strife between us, then I will. If it means selling some of my f- flocks at half off, what, what is that to me? I can lose sheep, but I, 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 can't lo- I cannot lose you. I, you're my father. You're my spiritual mentor. No, um, that would have been the honorable response. Instead, verse 10, look there with me. Instead, Lot lifts up his eyes and his eyes show him an incredible business opportunity out to the east. You know, right? Miles and miles of green and uninhabited pasture land. And he lifts up his eyes. He lifts up his blinded foolish, deceiving eyes, and Lot settles as far as his tents, as far as the city of of Sodom. The other night in family worship, we were having kind of a heart-to-heart discussion with the kids. It was kind of a, it was a bit of a argument uh, on uh, how great our expectations are of them as, as parents. And I was trying to make the point that really, I don't think that I have that, that much in the way of expectations for you, uh, kids. I, I really, I don't care what career you choose. It doesn't matter to me what college you go to, or even if you do go to college, or if you remain a Presbyterian Christian, or if you want to become a Baptist Christian, or an Anglican. Um, what, what matters to me is that you're faithful to Jesus. And when the time comes when you are going to make life-altering 
decisions, those decisions would be based on faith and not by sight. And the Lot's eyes, his, his foolish eyes, you, you know how the story goes. Once he gets to Sodom, Lot basically loses everything. Loses his wife, loses his relationship with his daughters, loses his sanity, he loses his peace of mind. He, um, when he divides up from Abraham here, it weakens them as a military force. And the very next chapter, he, he goes on to get captured, a captive, a prisoner of war in battle. His eyes show him the, 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 a once-in-a-lifetime, just the, the kind of business decision that you can't pass up. And what I really want from you, I say to my kids, is just that you're, let those decisions be motivated by faith, as trite as that may sound. For faith is the discernment of things that are unseen. Faith, Hebrews tells us, looks for a city that is yet to come. Hebrews 11.10. Abraham was looking for a city whose architect and builder is God. And you've got to think that's the reason that he was able... That's the reason he was able to do something this unconventional. I mean, to, to sacrifice his rights as the patriarch, to lay down his self-interest, to pursue this higher goal of, of family harmony. Faith gives determination to human actions. It, it gives particular shape and direction and content and goal to Christian actions. And it entirely changes the way that you evaluate shifting comparisons and, and, and the way that you end up doing life. Let me ask you this question. All of our parents are going to die if they haven't already, and the, the family estate is going to be parceled out. Um, when that happens... How is that experience, what is that experience going to be like for your siblings? Are they at that moment when the executor is, is parceling out, are they going to be glad that they are dealing with a Christian person like you? Are they going to be surprised by the, the magnanimous, the generous, the open-handed spirit that characterizes how you deal with a very sensitive family manners? Or are they going to are they going to wish that your parents had written everything down explicitly because of the awful arguments and the fights that are going to that are going to ensue? That I think is just one example of where the the unseen world meets the rubber meets the road of the seen world. When the unseen world of God and God's promises practically affects real life is when the, the, the unseen world becomes something that you are daily, regularly, sincerely calculating. I was walking on the Greenbelt this week with a friend of mine, and we're, we're having a good conversation. I asked him, how, how are you doing right now? And he said, I'm doing really well. He said, Brad, I don't want this to sound spooky, mystical or, or anything like that. He said, but recently when I have been praying 
I felt like the presence of God has been more real to me than anything that my eyes can see and my ears can hear. Like God's listening to me has been so real. And, and that's, that's what we desire. That the unseen world of, of God and his promises would be more real to, to you than the things that you can see. And if that is the case, it begins to radically alter the way we do ordinary life. And it gives you a, a tremendous ballast, let me suggest, tr- uh, tremendous foundation. Because the, the money passage here is Hebrews 11, chapter... Chapter 11, verse 10, Abraham was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Uh, foundations. Don't, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Christian Smith, I've cited him before. He's a sociologist at Notre Dame. He's probably done more research into the, the religious sensibilities of teenage and uh, emerging adults in, in America than pretty much any other researcher And this quote of his I came across, it captures how topsy-turvy life is for people who are in their their late teens and and 20s. I mean, if I I do, if you were born like in in 1950 through 19, the 50s or the 60s, I know that you know that the world today is very different than the world that you were you were born in, but I, I would love for you, you to feel genuine empathy for what it's like to be 20 today. Because I think 20 today is considerably harder than 20 then. Uh, and that's what Smith says. He says, emerging adults, they go to college, then they drop out of college, or they transfer to a new college, then they take a break for a semester to save money. They want to study architecture. Well, then they discovered that they hate architecture and they switched their career path to criminal justice only to discover that there are no jobs in criminal justice. So what do I do now? Their home life. Well, what is that like? Well, their parents may separate and, and then they make up and then they get back together and then out of the blue they get divorced and then they get remarried. Often emerging adults will take a take a job, quit a job, find another job, get promoted in that new job, and move to another city where they will get new roommates, but those new roommates won't work out, so they'll, find a new, they'll move out, find a new apartment where they decide to live on their own. And then they find their soulmate. They get involved, but their soulmate dumps them. They're crushed. They believe in saving sex for meaningful relationships. Then they then they lose their mind and they hook up. Then they get angry with themselves. Then they go out on a date with a creep from Match.com. And then they're single again. They smoke. They want to quit smoking. They quit for some days. They start smoking again. It's, he, goes, he says, in these and other ways for emerging adults, um, life, there's not a lot in life that is stable or enduring. There's not a lot in most 20-something's life that feels like it has any foundations. But you do. If you're a Christian, you have a city with foundations. Amen. Plant your flag in that. There's only one catch, and that is that it's an unseen city. 
And unless you learn how to see things by faith, it's an unseen city is going to have very little practical weight in your life. And you are going to, you're going to, life is going to be one crazy trip through zero gravity where you never feel like you have your, your feet settled on the ground because you don't have foundations. If you cannot see an unseen foundation, if you don't know how to do that, then life's going to be really hard. There's so much we cannot see, but we need to know is there. We, we cannot see demons that inhabit our world and torment, torment us. We cannot see angels who are servants to sent, sent by God to help us. We cannot see hell and the, and the consequences of unbelief. We cannot see heaven and the souls of Christians rejoicing in the joyful presence of Jesus. We cannot see the hand of God orchestrating all events according to his will. And we cannot see the nail prints still visible in the hands and the feet of Jesus. Like none of that is visible to the naked eye. But all of that is fabulously real. So I say to my kids and I say to your kids, when you're making life-altering, life-changing decisions, would you please learn how to base those decisions on these things? And you don't base it on the economic data. You don't... You have a terrible, irrational streak that runs through you that even if you know the economic data, you're, apparently you're going to miss it, at least according to um, you know, econo- behavioral economists. You don't base it upon what your eyes, what Lot's eyes, what the Jordan Valley, you don't base it on what those eyes can see. So I got to this point in my sermon and I thought, this seems a little, maybe that's a little theoretical. Is there anything that we can do to help us, to train us to live lives by faith? And a couple of ideas came to mind. Probably the most obvious is the cultivate your prayer life. Um, there's a pretty good likelihood that that you spend, that you don't even spend five minutes a day in prayer. Most of us, we talk a really good prayer game, but we, we, we don't pray. I bet 80% of you, if you take out the, the time spent praying before your meal, 80% of you don't spend more than 45 seconds a day in, in prayer, which is really quite sobering. But it's the person who, who has a vibrant and robust prayer life, who's, who's interacting with the unseen world. That, well, that's obviously training you how to do faith. Uh, another idea I had is just Sunday worship. I mean, it is hard to come in here and sing to a God who you cannot see. But the regular discipline of, of corporate worship, that trains you. And then the final idea I came across was proposed by Gary Haugen of the International Justice Mission, a nonprofit Christian group that cares for international victims of sexual exploitation and, and uh, uh, sex slavery, etc. This is really cool. I never thought of this. He's, follow the quote. Christians are meant to be particularly gifted in sustaining a commitment to what is true and important, though unseen. Right, the very essence of faith, we're told, is the conviction of things unseen. 
And we're, we who are only rarely exposed first or second hand to the truth about those who are suffering injustice in the world are taught in the scriptures to remember what we know even after it leaves, leaves our sight or experience. Okay, what he does there is he cites those numerous passages in the Bible which says basically, remember your brothers and sisters who are persecuted or who are imprisoned for Christ. Remember them. Though you cannot see them, remember them. Precisely because it is not our first and natural inclination, we are called to a conscious effort of reserving a space in our thought life for those who suffer abuse and oppression in our world. Surely it is God's job to remember all the victims of injustice in in our world, but might there not be one child or one prisoner or one widow or one refugee that you can remember? And I got to thinking about this. We adopt a, a Haitian a little Haitian girl through Compassion International. I've told you about her before. We do not see little Kernisha except for a picture like once every two or three years. I mean, effectively, Kernisha is unseen to me. And yet, every time I pray for her or I write her letters or I send her a birthday present, I'm like having to engage largely a world that is either unseen or a cause that is only partially seen And that's got to be training my soul to to operate, I think, that way, if that makes sense. So doing things that act on the partially unseen, we train ourselves in that mindset. Finally, let's go back to the passage. Abraham makes a very uh, unconventional decision to give the decision, to, to allow Lot to decide on, first choice of the land. And after that, what does God do? Verse 14, he, I think he takes him up on a mountain and says, says, look, north, south, east, west. Um, He shows him the the vastness of his promise. It's curious because sometimes God does show us something. Many of you know Rory Ramsey in our church. I was having coffee with Rory a couple of weeks ago. You may know that he's a, a pretty avid mountain biker. He was telling me about a, a mountain biking trip that he took to Moab, Utah, about a year ago. Now, I grew up in Arizona, and we spent some time in the Grand Canyon and spent a couple summers in northern Arizona on Lake Powell, which is kind of red rock country, but it's not, it's not all the way up into Moab. I mean, it's, it's stunning but I've, I've never seen Moab. And he says, oh, you've got to see Moab. So later that day, he sends me a video. I find it in my inbox. The video is clearly taken from his iPhone, his cell phone. He's standing on top of a mesa, and he just pulls out the phone, and he begins to pan, 360, just quietly. I mean, all you can hear is a man who's out of breath slightly (laughs) in the background as he's panning around. And as you see canyons, breathtaking mesas, crazy rock formations, uh, and more canyons. It is the best 360 degrees I have ever seen in my life. And at the end of the video, Rory's face appears and he says, hey, this is where I'm eating lunch today. (laughs) Not bad. Behold the vastness. Uh, Abraham, behold 
the vastness of my love for you. I love you this much. I love your grandchildren this much. I love your great-grandchildren this much. No sooner does Abraham make a decision by faith than God gives him at least something partially to see. It's not as if God never gives us nothing to see, but he gives us little glimmers. You you came here this morning, and you do not feel buoyant with faith, hope, and love. You... you um, You don't feel full of the joy of the Lord. Uh, You need a 360 degrees. You lift up your head. You you circle your eyes around this room. And you see what God has given you to see. The body of Christ. All these people. He has has given you. No, you cannot see the the hands of Jesus with the the nail scars, the holes, but you can see the hands of Jesus, the body of Christ. Um, You lift up your eyes. Behold the vastness of my love. The Lord's Supper is, it's the vastness of my love is, is shown to you at the table. The body and blood of our Lord Jesus broken for you, shed for you. You look, you look at those things. So what I would say is if you, you're really struggling with the unseen, then then start first with the partially seen and work from there. Uh, the body of Christ, the Lord's body and blood, the promises of God, the best vantage point to see the promise of God are right here. Amen.